I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Before we go on to this week's show, I did want to take a minute to talk to you about the sound quality from last week's show. Many of you know this is a new podcasting venture, so like Ray Davies, we are still working out the kinks here. But please know that it's an ongoing effort and we expect continuous improvement as we move along. So let's just do that. Let's move along to this week's show. I'm really excited about the show. Hunsley Albina, the bloodstock agent at Salusto and Albina, joins us. Hunsley's going to talk about a fascinating yet mysterious, to many of us, aspect of our game, the breeding and selling of the thoroughbred. T.K. Kugler, last week's guest, the founder and managing partner of Wasabi Venture Stables, is going to join us to share a great big score story. And is actually going to share some big score strategy insights with us as well that I think you'll find valuable. And finally, Damien Tossi is going to return as a guest handicapper to give us some insights into one of this week's big races. So let's get this party started. Our guest today is Hunsley Albina. Hunsley is a partner at Salusto and Albina Premier Bloodstock Services. We're going to dive in deeper to understand exactly what goes on in this segment of our sport, which is sometimes a bit of a mystery to the average person at the track, or at least it is to me anyway. Hunsley, thanks for joining us today. Oh, pleasure to be here, Bill. So, Hunsley, can you tell us how you ended up getting involved in racing? I know your family has a history in racing and, and goes back some, some time. Can you tell us about that? It's a pretty interesting story, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, my grandfather, uh, he owned horses in the Middle East, specifically in Lebanon and, and Jordan. And they were half thoroughbred, half Arabians. And he owned them for pleasure, you know. You know, he didn't have a large stable. He had a few horses, but really got into it and was very involved in the tracks there. Uh, and my father grew up with with that. And uh, he actually hated horses up until the age of 12. Uh, but every day, my, he said my grandfather used to come to his room at whatever the time was and say it's time to go riding and he would hide and pretend to sleep and do anything he could to avoid it and just uh, apparently at the age of 12 he realized this guy's not gonna stop doing this took him 12 years but okay yeah (laughs) took him 12 years he he gets up goes with him fell in love and he actually was an amateur uh jockey uh rider for my grandfather uh in his early years up until 18 when he had too many injuries uh, to continue, and uh, he switched to training, uh, and um, he got a a good training job right out of the box. He uh, he became uh, the private trainer for uh, King Hussein of Jordan's uncle. Okay. So his first experiences in training were great because he got great horses, uh, a yeah. lot to choose from, great facilities, and uh, he did very well. He was a top trainer for many years there. Um, and, you know, in the late seventies, um, the King's uncle passed away and a job opportunity came to him to train in England and he'd always wanted to go and train there. He actually said, I I always saw myself going there. He didn't know how, he didn't know, uh, why, um, his, uh, they spoke English in the house. Let me give a little backstory. My, My, they spoke English in the house. My, my grandmother's Swiss German and my grandfather is Palestinian. So uh, they, you know, English was the house language, and they also spoke Arabic and French and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, he, you know, they had an ex- a lot of exposure to Europe and 
and European traditions and so on and so forth. So England was always a place you want to go. So he went over to train privately for um, uh, what was Buckermoke Farm, which is uh, Mahmoud Fustak's uh, mm. operation over there. And he was a private trainer in, in, in England. They were dominating or doing very well anyway in French racing. And they had a second string in, in England. Um, you know, I was born in 78. So I'm, you know, I moved from Jordan when I was two and I went to England. And my first experience was uh, when we moved to Newmarket, which is where mm. it's like the Lexington of, right. of training in England. Uh, the first place we lived, we rented a stable from Lester Piggott, who was one of the greatest oh, sure. jockeys of all time. He had a stable on a major road there, uh, and uh, we rented it while the stable my dad would have was being built. And so uh, that was my first uh, place that I recall. You know, you know, my first earliest memories are there. And then, then when our stable was completed, we went over there. At that time, he was. Uh, it was a state-of-the-art facility, and he uh, he had his best horse at the time was a horse named Silverhawk, who uh, was third in the English Derby and second in the Irish Derby, and uh, won the Craven Stakes, mm. and uh, mm. yeah, and then became a, a, a very successful stallion in this country. Yeah, I think that, that's where well, I recognize the name from. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so his his yeah his effects have been felt in many pedigrees, including some of the best blue hen mares out there currently are Silverhawk mares. So you can see hmm. his pedigree and influence throughout the industry still today, even though he's passed away. He stood at Airdrie Farm, but so yeah, so we, uh, you know he 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 trained in England for a while, and um, and I grew up there and, and a little bit, and then you know he'd been training since he was eighteen, you know, and he he was getting older and he wasn't seeing a lot of his children, and he said, you know what, I think. He got an opportunity to come to Kentucky to be general manager of Bucker Moak Farm, which is about a 500-acre farm. It's now Stone Street Farm. But at that time, it was Bucker Moak Farm. And, 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 and he said, you know what, I think I'm going to do that. So we all moved over here, and the rest of my youth was spent on a horse farm. Wow. A very different aspect of the game. So, you know, the, it was from that background that I kind of did thing, just about everything. You know, I worked on the farm. I worked in at sales companies. I worked, you know, on the purchase side of things early on as a teenager. And oh, wow. um, I got to kind of experience and taste uh, all the aspects. And what I gravitated towards was the agent side of it, the the management agent purchase side of it. And, and that's very different than the trainer hmm. side of it that my dad did. He was a general manager of a farm towards the end. But and and I that's part of what I do for sure, but uh, yeah we just I just you know at first I think everyone in the horse business wants to be a trainer I think you you look at that a trainer and you say wow who doesn't want to be like right. a Bob Baffert or in the winter circle Lucas yeah, yeah and and yeah. and then you know I worked at the racetrack in the summers during college and I think if you if you you know are a person who is a logical thinker, you look around you and you, and you say, "I don't know how this is going to work out." I think you say, "I'm going to be, you know, traveling around the country, working seven days a week, waking up at four thirty in the morning for uh, for the rest of my life." Right. Where do I, where do I get the family? Where do I get the wife? Where do I get where's home? And you realize that 
you know, even though that is something you'd love to do and the accolades would be great and the, the joy of winning, you know, a big race would be great. It's, there is a lot of sacrifice there. It's not for free. And, um, I think that's, that's what finally got me. You know, I just said, no, I, I, I think I enjoy the other side of the business a little, a little more. A little, a little more so, regular regularity to it. Um, for sure, right? Yeah, yeah, and I enjoy. I just enjoyed the sales. I enjoyed uh, the planning. I enjoyed matings. I got you know just being on the farm. I got good at matings and good at, at breeding mares, and 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 uh, I enjoyed the process and watching my mating turn into an actual horse and turn into a stakes horse, or you know see yeah. how that goes uh-huh. and and hear the theories and you know weigh what I thought was important versus what. Um, the industry thought was important versus what other experts thought were uh, was important. Uh, it was all very exciting. It's you you know you you're just unlocking a mystery, you know, and there's no rules to it, um, and then that's what I enjoyed. But that brought me to where I am, which is I have a partner in Nick Salusto, and we um, the the best analogy for people who don't have a clue what we do is I say we're like the manager of a baseball team. So if, if you think about it, the manager of a baseball team, he interfaces with the owner. He is responsible for hiring all of the management that deals with the team. He, he is responsible for managing all of the managers who are responsible for the facility. And at the end of the day, he has to pick the talent. And if he doesn't do that, all of the other stuff really doesn't matter, right? The most right. important thing is always picking the talent. And that's exactly what we do. Um, you know, we um, we go to sales. We carefully p- pick our talent. We carefully uh, evaluate them over the winter time uh, at Ocala, wherever we're breaking them, and then we send them out to the appropriate trainers. And that's obviously an evaluation process too. We've dealt with them. We watch what their horses do. We watch their training patterns. We watch how. They treat their horses, hmm. and when they take, you know, you know how aggressive they are. We watch all those things, and we we measure that with what we know of the horse, and then we interface with the owners and explain to them that oh well maybe this horse isn't going to be a two year old, and so on and so forth. We shouldn't push, and and in some cases, uh, as in Newtown Anner, which is our our largest client at this time, we also manage a farm and we set in place people to manage a farm and we run it and we do breeding and so on and so forth. Not always. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that are going on behind the scenes, and that's why I, I'm really glad you wanted to, to do this interview because I think that that a lot of people don't understand everything that goes on before the horses ever hit the track. Um, you know, when you are looking at uh, horses or, 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 or yeah, let's say horse. I was going to say maize, but let's just talk about the, the actual horse that's, that's produced. What are you looking for, and how do you value them, Hunsley? Is it is it you know do you pro- rely primarily on confirmation, on bloodlines? Are, are there other aspects that you're looking at? Um, it's going to be kind of a balancing act, I would imagine, of, of several different factors. It is. I mean. It depends on what we want to do. Now that sounds silly. Like everyone say, "Well, you want to win races," but so I have. Cli- I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll talk through it. So we have. I have clients in Western Canada, which is a regional market, and they run in Western Canada. And so, what the goals for them and the way I'm going to achieve those goals are different than someone who says, "I want to win the Kentucky Derby." 
And then versus someone who says, I don't really care about the Kentucky Derby. I just want to have good stakes horses or I want turf horses or, you know, those are very different ambitions and those are very different things to do. And you have to tackle them from different angles. Um, And so you approach them differently. The Western Canadian people, I basically throw out pedigree, look for only physicals. And as far as sire power is concerned, I'm actually not looking for any kind of sire power because uh, they can't really afford it to make it work. Uh, you know, when they're running, when they're running for their stake races are fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars, and there's probably three of them in a year. You can't buy a hundred thousand dollar horse. That's a, it's, a, it's, it's a loser. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and yeah. so, and so you you try to keep your budget at twenty or thirty thousand dollars or below, and that means you're going to have to take some compromises on your sire power. But at the end of the day, even some of the worst sires you can name have one good horse. So all you have to do is find that horse all you, in a crop or so on and so forth. So, you know, I think you go out, you find the best individual you can, you vet them, you do your due diligence, and then you make your play for that horse for that particular, uh, you know, uh, region for mm-hmm. Russian Canada. Now, when I buy a horse for for a derby horse or open for an open company person, a large purchaser here with a large budget, um, physicality is still number one for me. Okay. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, well, one of the best horses I, I, I bought has been a horse named Violence. Oh, who wow. won, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he won the Cash Call Futurity. Uh, What's the Hollywood Futurity? The Cash Call Futurity at the time. And um, he actually beat Orb in his maiden race at Saratoga, first time out. And then he went on to win the Nashua and then he went on to to win the cash call and he actually got he got hurt in the fountain of youth and he and on that day he lost orb um and he's he's become a pretty successful sire now very, but very successful but when, sire i think yeah right? yeah 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 he's 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 doing quite well but he when when we bought him um he had two blank dams so the pedigree was not typically a pedigree that you can go after and spend a lot of money, but he was by Medallidora, who I thought it was a stallion on, on the rise. But at that at the time I bought him, Medallidora had never had a grade one winning colt. He was mostly fillies. And so people were starting rumbling and saying, well, he's a Philly sire. So you, you know, and so I was able to buy him for $600,000, which sounds like a lot of money. But if he'd been a Philly, it would not have been a lot of money. There would have been much more money for him. And if he hadn't had two blank dams, while while buying something something with two blank dams for six hundred thousand dollars is is very unusual. In his case, he had a lot of deep pedigree. So and 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 in his immediate family, there was a lot of potential there. So it was less, even though on paper it was, um, it was a little risky. It was less risky because I had some information on the horse and I uh, on his family, and I knew that it wasn't as it appeared. But you know. Um, for him, it was all physicality. He was a beautiful horse. He was a big horse. He was a May full, which was concerning to me because, uh, you know, if you're going for the Derby, this is your big horse. Um, you worry about that. But he was very well put together. Uh, so I was uh, I was less concerned. And uh, even though he didn't make it to the Derby, he was actually the winter favorite for the Derby, and then he, and he got hurt in the Fountain of Youth. So got a little unlucky, but... Um, you know, that's what that's what I uh, I look for. So even as a even as a weanling and a yearling, then you could see 
the, the growth potential in the horse, I guess, as well, right? Because I, I got to believe they fill out some, you know, between the time you pick them out and the time they hit the track. But you could see that in the horse. Yeah, I mean, you have to, well, you have to know a lot of things to see that. One, you have to kind of, if you know about the Maris progeny, then you kind of know how they how they change. But you don't always know that. Um, and if you know about the Sire's progeny, you know a little bit about that. Um, but you have to look at the horse and say, well, this horse looks like from, from his shape, from, from different attributes that he's going to grow and he's going to be bigger, um, and progress in the right way. You don't know it for sure, but that's the gamble, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, it's, you, you, the physical is number one. Uh, Number two is, is your, your pedigree for sure. Um, you know, for me, um, I don't, I don't weigh as heavily on it. I, what I look for is something to tell me that I'm making a mistake. So if I see something that's a, a mare that's had a lot of progeny and none have raced or they haven't raced well and she's been bred to very, very good sires or she's had good sales history where a lot of her foals are sold for a lot of money, which means they're probably very nice looking horses and none of them have run. And then I, I have a horse in front of me that's very beautiful that's the seventh or the eighth foal. Then I probably don't want to be the next sucker, you know? <laughs> not to No, I don't play. Yeah, that's great. That's not yeah. to say that she couldn't do it. It's just to say it's a little bit more risk than I want to take. Um, but as far as turf and dirt is concerned, people are very mired in that whole pedigree turf and dirt. But I, I'm not. I just find that, you know, originally a lot of the great – turf sires we talk about today were dirt horses and vice versa so i think it's generational i mean they talk about arch it's a great example that oh he's a turf sire but his best horse was blame and he won the super derby so i'm not really i I, you know i think that it it's the classic too yeah 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 yeah, I, i think it's it varies i think that you have to look at the individual you're dealing with and if and how he moves and what he prefers and it could change i don't i think it's very hard you know to 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 determine that from pedigree and sire i think that uh it's more important to look at the physical attributes of the horse and 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 how they move uh, to determine what surface they're gonna raise a good point too um honestly because i think we've gotten very narrowly focused on surface and distance and, and and all things like that and that's why i like to see a horse like mind your biscuits you know go from a sprint to a to a you know mile and a quarter route and things like that and if you go back you know the old days let's say the kelsos and the forgos you know number one they'd run every two weeks first of all you know or every two or three weeks but second of all they go short on the dirt and the next race they go long on the grass you know secretariat one races on both the grass and the dirt um it, it feels like I don't know if it's a consequence of more money being spent and so people getting short-armed about their investment, but like they don't want to risk anything. They don't want to put their dirt horse on the turf. They don't want to put their turf horse on the dirt. Uh, it, it, am I thinking about that right? Is, is that something that you see as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Justify would have been a prime candidate for the turf also. He may have been even more brilliant on it than he was on the dirt. Oh, wow. But we'll That's never know. Okay. Um, I think that... Um, I think that uh, that definitely is the case. I, I 
it's I'm torn by it. You know, I, I like to see an owner who is willing to run their horse for a long period of time, but I certainly understand someone who gets offered twenty million dollars or forty million dollars or whatever it may be to retire your horse, not wanting to risk the reputation and the the you know the uh, their their record on an experiment. You know. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. You're right. It, it's uh, especially when they've spent that much, or they're looking at that much, you know, in the, in the breeding shed, for instance. I mean, you know, uh, you knew, you know, after Justify, for instance, won the Triple Crown, that horse was never going to race again, not for the money that they were looking at. You know, I mean, it would have been crazy, honestly. Um, and I think anyone that criticizes that type of decision, you know, faced with the same one and the amount of money, you got to take it. I mean, there's just no way you got to yeah. take it. It's, it's, I mean, the word unfortunate is used, but you want us to remember that if, if it weren't for the money, then a lot of it wouldn't happen, right? The people wouldn't have the, a lot of people wouldn't have the excitement and want to participate. And, and so it's a double-edged sword, you know, we, 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 we've created this game that, that has this huge pot of gold and then having the pot of gold has kind of reduced the game. Uh, so it's, it's tough. It's a good way of putting it. Actually, that's a really good way of putting it. And so you must have a network like all over the country then of people that alert you to opportunities and you must have your head spinning in several different directions every day, like Florida, California, you know, <clears throat> what's going on down in Ocala and, and what's going on up at Saratoga. How, how do you, you know, manage and balance all that. You talked about being the manager of a baseball team. How do you manage that part of it? Just being, you know, keeping your fingers in everything and knowing what's going on. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I, I don't try to do it myself. So I have partners. My partner, Nick Salusto, he's more on the racing side of things. And uh, my pa- partner, Ron Blake, he's more on the farm side of things. And I'm kind of in the middle. So, um, I'm at, uh, you know, I'm at the farm every day uh, for Newtown Enter, and I, you know, oversee, I'm general manager of the farm, and I oversee everything, but I, I'm, Ron is manager of horse operations, and so he's, he's day-to-day with the horses, that's all he's thinking about, and that's what he's focusing on, and I'll jump in um, every now and then, and just, we'll, we'll get on things together, we'll evaluate things together, it's mostly evaluation, and then Nick, same thing, so he'll, We'll talk about different plays. We'll, you know, he'll watch. He'll be watching races. He'll go to races. He have some. He'll have connections that'll contact him with horses that have wanted obscure tracks that they think are potentially nice runners. And then he'll look at them, watch the races, run some numbers, and and uh, you know, then eventually one of us will go see the horse. Uh, and we'll make a decision based off of that. And we've had a lot of success doing that. I mean, um, he's he bought Big Brown uh, oh, as okay. a training horse. Okay. Uh, he was with IEH for a while. IEAH for a while, and they bought a, a lot of horses when it was when it was a, a new thing to actually buy into horses or buy horses out of training. Well, not a new thing, but it was a it wasn't done as widespread as it is now. Now you're seeing it done quite a bit. But they were they were one of the that you know, uh, definitely uh, one of the groups to to start doing that at a, at a large level. And he did, uh, just, like I said, Big Brown, uh, Lara, um, Court Vision, um, Benny the Bull, 
Uh, and so, in, yeah, and uh, Amen, Hallelujah. And uh, so re- more recently we've done, um, he's done Arklo. We did Arklo. So, he, you know, I, I went to Churchill. Yeah, I went to Churchill to look at him. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and then Mind, Mind Control was another one. Yeah, so. I just read, um, I think it was this year, there was a horse that won a maiden race at Laurel, and it was like, a, you know, the fourth race on Thursday or something, and then, you know, you know you're reading the DRF, that Gary West, per, you know, and then the horse won by like 17 lengths or something like that, and it may not have been this year, it may have been last year, but, you know, the horse breaks a maiden at two-year-old by like 17 lengths, and then Gary West, you know, steps in and purchases the horse for, I don't know, it was like a couple of hundred thousand dollars, but I, I remember thinking to myself, somebody watched the fourth race at Laurel and picked up the phone and called Gary West and said, you got to take a look at this horse. And, 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 and just the process that you described, right? I mean, they, you know, the, you watch the race, you probably go back and look at the pedigree and then you go look at the horse. And, uh, but I was amazed that, that, you know, just like you said, and Laurel's not an obscure track, but it's a, uh, you know, it's not Belmont, it's not Naira, it's not California. Um, I was amazed that that, that the, the the like the the chain of information that had to flow to get that purchase to happen was pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot, and sometimes you miss them, sometimes you don't. Sometimes a fifteen length victory is the best day they ever had, which is the nightmare, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So you know it's not easy, um, but it is. It's um, we've had some success with it. I mean, off the tracks was purchased that way, uh, and um, also Caledonia Road was purchased that way. So, okay. Okay. You know, those two worked out, um, but they don't always. But yeah, absolutely. The information network is there, and and people call people you do business with, trainers. They'll you'll have a good transaction with them to where it was easy and it was. Um, you know everything was done properly, and you did what you said you could do, and they'll call you back on the next one. But mainly, it's watching races. It's watching races and um, being able to evaluate uh, the quality of the race across multi tracks. You know, so good horses can come from Calder, like they can come from Laurel, like they can come from Keeneland. I mean, obviously at Keeneland, you want a maiden special weight at Keeneland. You're probably a pretty talented horse. You want a maiden special weight at at um, Saratoga. You're probably a pretty talented horse. But it's these smaller tracks where you've got a trainer who this is probably the best horse they'll ever have. They may not even know it's the best horse they ever have, and this horse ran a lights out race. Or a subtly good race, right? I mean, they don't have to all win by 15 lengths, or they can run second and and run big races. Um, and that's so. If you think about that, like people think, oh, well, a horse won by 15 lengths. You just called up and is it for sale? And then you made an offer. I mean, that's not that tough. Anybody Maybe, can do that. but yeah. Yeah. you know, when you find yeah. a horse that doesn't hasn't won a race, that ran a good race, and you say, well, that, that horse is interesting. It closed on slow fractions, and you know the track was dead that day. Like this, there is a lot of information that you have to process and know. Then you can use the numbers, whatever numbers you use, whether it's Ragusons or thoroughgraphs or buyer speed figures or black box, whatever it is you use, uh, you use those numbers, and then you have to um, you have to to, to 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 weigh it out, and I, you know. Um, I think your you had a previous guest 
on another podcast was speaking about how he had used rags and numbers. Yep. And he, Scott, at yep. first he didn't understand, They, you know, he thought you just used them by reading the numbers like you would read a form, and then he understood how to use them. And that's, that's part of the trick, right? So you use your numbers. Uh, you learn how to use them. You 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 learn what pairing numbers means. You know you know you can evaluate um, those horses, and then you you incorporate it into your mix of what's important. So you know there'll be times where we'll get a horse that runs a freakish race. We'll travel wherever it is, where it's Canada, wherever. You I mean you've gotten on a plane, you've taken a vet with you, because that's the other thing. You have to take your vet oh, to evaluate. Very good. Okay. All right. You let you land. You go over to the, see the plane. You'll, I mean, to see the horse rather, and you'll be like, "Wow, I can't believe this horse ran this race. Um, it's a disaster. You know, it doesn't look like a horse that should be able to run that race." And then you've got to decide: Well, is it anomaly? Is this a horse that just is? very unattractive but can continue to run this way or do its physical attributes are they going to cause me to limit it are they going to limit the longevity of its career am i buying a a, you know a a ticking time bomb um and it's it's all that stuff's in play and of course when you vet the horse you know horse and training is never going to vet completely clean you're always going to find something so that's another issue right and and then you have to you have to compound that with the fact that you have to call an owner and say listen Remember the horse I told you we should pay half a million dollars for? Well, he's got this issue in whatever joint. And it may or may not compromise the longevity of its career. So do you still want to do it? And they don't know how to answer that. And you may or may not know how to answer that. And even though you've done it several times and it's worked out several times, there's a good chance that it that it may not this time. It's Everything is different. So... Uh, you know, I don't know who said it first, but the horse business is, is a business where you can make all the right decisions and still fail. Still, still have the wrong outcomes. Yeah. Uh, no, that's actually, as you're talking about all the, the risks and everything, I'm thinking to myself, how do you ever put your hand in your pocket and, you know, pull it out and say, all right, we're going to do it on this one. But uh, <clears throat> I suppose you just kind of weigh everything out. And uh, like you said, you're going to have some hits and you're going to have some misses, right? That's just That's just the nature of the game. Yeah. There's only there's only one horse that wins every every race, right? And the others are all That's losers. Right. So, um, yeah. So uh, you know, one thing that I'm always curious about, uh, especially over the last I guess seven, eight to ten years, uh, if you exclude the Bob Baffert factor, why is it, in your opinion, that California horses do so much better in the Triple Crown races than do horses coming from the other circuits? Because I I tell people now, you know, I, I like to handicap you, as you know, and people. You know, on derby time, they want to know, you know, you know, the horse do you like? And, and I find myself nine times out of ten telling them, you know, this horse from California just, just looks like the goods. Um, uh, or, you know, maybe he's not going to be the winner, but you got to include him in the in the exotics or whatever. What, is it their training methods? Uh, what is it, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think it's the quality of the horse. I mean, it's, you know... You know, Doug O'Neill's brother buys the horses for Redham. He's a very talented guy. I mean, he buys good horses. You know, can't can't argue with that. He's a, you know, he's in the same business as I, and and the guy's definitely done it. And uh, he did very well with with, with with the Derby horses he picked out for them. Um, and then Bob, you know, he's there's no question he's the best trainer in the country. There's just no question. And um, you know, he gets his choice of some of the best horses out there, uh, as he should. 
And, you know, that's, at the end of the day, I think it's the horse. I think all those guys would tell you it's it's the horse, right? You have to have okay. the best horse. Um, so I think that's what it comes down to. I think you have, um, I think at one, you know, usually it's regional, right? An owner's from Kentucky. He sends his horses to a trainer in Kentucky. Uh, an owner's from New York, you know, that kind of thing. So, like, a guy from New York is more likely to send it to a Chad Brown or a Todd Pletcher because he wants to see the horse. But I think at a certain level, you have a very high level of owner who says, well, I want to go to the best. And if that means California, then I'll take a jet to go see my horse run in California. And that's fine, even though they're not from there. And so a lot of these expensive, nice horses, um, whether expensive or not, nice horses, are going to go to to. The, the, who they perceive to be the best trainers. And so I think it kind of it perpetuates itself. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question as far as if it's a, the, how difficult the races are. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's hard it's, to say. It, it's interesting. You know, you always hear that debate about how in California they work their horses hard in the morning, you know, uh, harder typically, I think, than they do on the East Coast. At least the DRF says that, you know, the horses were worked handily rather than breezing all the time. Um, you know, uh, so, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know if that's it, but I, I think what you're saying actually makes sense that, you know, the preparatory work that folks like you do with the, you know, looking at the physicality of the horse and their confirmation and understanding via their bloodlines what they're going to grow into, that then I suppose leads to a good sale price and the horses and the, the people that are willing to pay the good sales prices are the ones who are going to ship them to the, the Bafferts and the O'Neills and, you know, the Chad Browns and the Pletchers as well, right? Um, so to your point, I guess it does kind of perpetuate itself. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the top trainers, you know, whatever they're getting in, we'll use the number 50. 50 is not a good number, but it'll use the number 50. They get 52-year-olds in, and the better the trainer is, the better those 52-year-olds are, okay? So so they get to – so if you keep th- this in mind, like a Baffert, a Pletcher, they're going to get 52-year-olds that would be the best horses in – you know, a second or third tier trainer's barn, they've got 50 of them. And they're, and, and that's not to say that, oh, they're good horses and they would, they should all run if they were with other people. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, I'm saying they get to choose from those. They get to go through those because it isn't, there is a numbers game aspect to it. I mean, there's no question that, uh, Horses that run really fast and win stakes races, they're exceptions to the rule, right? And that's what you have to remember when entering the horse business. They're not the rule. It's not like, you know, there's 20,000 foals and and most of them run. That then Most of them don't run mm. and they don't win. Yep. And, and, and then a very finite amount, every crop, are exceptional. And so that's what they're trying to find. They're trying to find that exceptional horse. Um and I think they have a better opportunity to do that. And it's it's been created by their own success. It's not, um, it's not. Uh, they weren't given anything. They they earned it. But it is it does exist. But it also changes the way you train a horse. I think that that's something interesting that people don't think about. I mean, horses shift from trainer to trainer, 
and they they do differently. They they perform differently, and I think that is reflected. Like part of it is reflected in the way they train. Like if you have a horse, if you have a stable of say forty horses, and you get a horse that is an unbelievable horse, like a, a Curlin or a or a Street Sense or a whatever you want to say, a, a top level horse, a, a, a American Ferret, well, not American Ferret type, but like a, a top level horse, uh, then you are going to you're going to be very protective of that horse he is a star of your barn your attention is going to be 100% on that horse and you're going to in my mind you're going to make decisions differently about how to train and you say well that's that's a good thing most people say oh a good thing protect the horse protect the horse and that can be a good thing and 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 i'm not suggesting that anyone's um you know putting the, the well-being of the horse at risk. I'm simply saying that a guy with more good horses is going to maybe turn the screws a little more on a horse than a guy that that's his only horse who's more afraid to do it because if he loses that horse, it's a much more devastating thing than if the bigger trainer does. And sometimes that's the difference in the horse. Sometimes the horse needs that. I mean, he needs a little sharper work to be the grade one winner versus light works where he's a grade three, grade two, knocking on the door type horse. Sometimes that makes all the difference. Yep, yep. And, and, and you can see it in trainer changes. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good point. That's a really good point. So, uh, honestly, I know one thing we always uh, hear about every year is, you know, the new debut sires, right? And, who, you know, who the hot ones are going to be. And, and obviously, let's say when Justify's progeny start, you know, coming out, they're probably going to be, you know, uh, very attractive. We'll see, though, if they actually, you know, pan out on the on the track or not, much like we will with, with American Pharaohs, right? But, um you know, I would imagine a guy like you is looking at a lot more factors when you're trying to figure out who the next hot debut sire is is going to be, right? Uh, uh, you know, of the horses that are, are, you know, starting to produce now or are going to be producing soon, who, who do you think the next hot debut sire is going to be, two-year-old debut sire? Well, I think that, obviously, not impartial, but violence, I think, is made, is that all the right moves? I think he has a lot of good horses, he, the, the the grade one winner eludes him at this point, but that doesn't really concern me because, you know, there's 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 such across the board there's some top quality horses there. I think if you if you take Tog Vov to me, is the um, is the number one earner right now I believe, and if you take out her earnings, he's still number one in his crop. So, you know, to me that's that's. You know, amongst other things, it's a good sign. I think he's definitely going to be at the forefront. I mean, Medad Oro has international appeal, which is something that you always want. You know, he, they've won in Europe. They win here. Uh, turf, dirt, whatever. They run on every surface. Um, there's uh, a few other sires out there that I would, you know, I would um, look at. I mean... It's been an interesting year, actually, because there have been three sires, two, and then one more recently that that were cold as can be. Uh, and that would have been Quality Road, uh, Blame, and now looking at Lucky. Uh, you were in, if you had one of those folds a year, a few years ago. I mean, you were not getting any money for the, any of those folds. And over the last year, Blame has been meteoric. I mean, he's had 
stakes winners all over the place. I mean, of course, uh, Quality Road is through the roof, you know. And now, now looking at Lucky, who was just a you know kind of a hard knocking sire out there, kind of on the cusp of sticking around in Kentucky or leaving. He's he's now had you know he's got probably top horse for Breeders' Cup, and and, and uh, so they're they're coming back, and I think that's a reflection of the people who are able to breed. I think it's after um, you know the initial. Uh, breeders came in and bred to those horses. I think that they their stud fees reduced, and then you got a lot of clever uh, lower end breeders coming in and breeding, and they kind of did something a little different with the mix or something like that, and uh, and it worked out. Um, but that's interesting because I think it 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 sets a precedent where people don't shouldn't give up on these stallions so quickly. It's interesting uh, that the market is is done just that, where if you don't have um, you know, if you don't have instant success, then you are, you're gone. You're in a regional market. You're in another country. You're, you're yesterday's news and you move on to the next one. Um, but, um, I'm trying to think who else, um, I like practical joke. I think he's, he's a young sire. That's, that's a beautiful horse. I mean, into mischief is just an unbelievable yeah. sire. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yep. He started from very humble beginnings, and he's elevated himself to one of the top sires in the game. Um, and he's breeding a lot of numbers, so there's going to be a lot of offspring. Um, I'm trying to think who else would be a good young sire. Um, a practical joke is that's a good, that's that's a good call on that one because he he's not produced anything yet, right? I mean, he's there, or you know, maybe they just you know, coming out now, uh, but that's a, that's a good one because, um, you know, there's, there's no evidence out there yet, but that's something you're looking at and you're saying probably going to be a good producer. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a sire out there. Uh, he, I bought him as a yearling also, which was a horse named Ken Thoros. Oh, and, oh my gosh. Yes. And he, yeah. he was brought, he was stood in Florida originally and, and they, and he, his offspring did so well being bred to, um, very low level mares in Ocala and then they, they did well and so they brought him up here he's getting better mares and uh, still with the crops in Florida he's continuing to have more and more stakes horses and uh, and doing doing very well I think he's going to be an interesting horse for the future for sure he's uh, I mean he's almost uh, when you see Cantaros in the bloodlines uh, these days it, it almost feels like a must bet honestly that horse is just you know everything that seems to come out of him um, seems to seems to run you know you, you mentioned something interesting too uh, just going back to the comments about the trainer you know the, the premier trainers having 52 year old 52 year olds in the barn and they're not all going to be stakes <clears throat> runners so the the trainer gets pretty ruthless in winnowing that down, right? I mean, over over, over time. Similarly, what you were talking about with the breeding market is, you know, a horse doesn't produce in Kentucky, you know, he gets a little bit of time, right, to, to, to prove himself. But that market is pretty ruthless as well. It can be pretty ruthless, right? You go, to, you go into another state, or we see this a lot, um, you know, going to Korea, going to South America, um, going to Australia, the, the market doesn't have a lot of patience, but you're saying actually, you know, some of these horses, like a like a Blaine, who's one of my all-time favorite horses, maybe just need to be a little patient. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think that's a credit to the farms that stand them to, to wait to hold the line and say, you know what? This horse is doing better than people think. Or, you know, its top horses got hurt, but they, there was potential out there. And to stand them another year and, and to have shareholders kind of suffer through it to not maybe get, you know, the money they want over a deal to, say, buy the mountain, and move the horse, that, um, that takes experience and it takes uh, – well, good judgment, and and I think that, you know, definitely the Claiborne people uh, would have had chances to move that horse, and they were very smart not to, and I think it's paying dividends. I think he's a really, he's an attribute to the breed because he's a good two-turn horse. Um, tough horse, just tough, tough-minded too, just... Uh... Tough-minded, I mean, you know, and... Uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's great that to have him still, and, and now he's a viable, uh, marketable as well as race sire. So it's it's great. Yeah, I I don't know if Roz has told you this or not, but uh, the, the replay that I watch the most, the uh, the replay that I watch the most of any horse races, Secretary Belmont. Yeah, Zenyatta Blame because I yeah, no <laughs> I was all over Blame that day, and uh, when he pushed through at the head of the stretch, uh, I I mean I knew Zenyatta was coming going to be coming but as i always like to point out to people if you watch the gallop out after the race he never ever let her go by and she came at him several times and oh, he yeah. just would not let her go by <laughs> it was he had well, something to prove that day yeah no i i mean i look at that i look at that race from the other angle i i'm the zenyatta guy because i thought that it was um like a complete travesty that there was even a debate about Rachel and Zenyatta the previous year. I thought that was the most ridiculous thing in the world. Yeah. I thought yeah, that there's clearly Zenyatta. Yeah. She beat too. the boys, wins the yeah. Breeders' Cup. And then when she comes back in defeat, she just solidified herself as the best horse of of multi-generations, you know? You know, she she was just just so good in defeat. And, yeah, Blame was best on that day, no question about it. And, actually, it's funny because I saw him win at Churchill – Actually, I'd seen him win earlier, and I guess he took a break, and then I saw him come back and win later on, and I had called um, a client of mine. I said, you've got to breed to Arch. I just saw an unbelievable horse here at Churchill named Blame, and uh, he, he later on made me look good. But, yeah, he uh, – he, um, he, it was unbelievable. It's an unbelievable race. I remember being there at, the, at uh, Churchill Downs, and, you know – it's it's i'm not saying i get jaded but i mean we go to a lot of races we mm. see a lot of r- remarkable things we go to a lot of big days and have a lot of fun but on that day if you remember it was cold it was dark because it was late and you know it's packed everyone comes out to watch the race at churchill at churchill when, when, when the classics on and i just remember uh them coming down the stretch and you know after they passed the wire i looked down and i'm standing on my chair I don't oh, even wow. know how I got up on my chair. And I remember feeling the entire place just rumble and shake. You know, the entire <clears throat> grandstand was just rumbling and shaking like I never heard before. So it was crazy. It was like, you know, it was like I would have imagined, uh, you know, Secretariat coming down the lane in the Belmont. I obviously wasn't there, but but uh, I would imagine it would be like that. But it was, without a doubt, the most exciting race, live race event I've ever experienced. And that was... I mean, if you go to the ra- if you go to a race on that day as a, as a casual fan and you watch something like that and you don't get uh, you know thrown into it, I don't know what 
Or yeah, there's, yeah, there's yeah. More, you'd so. be a fan for life. Yeah, you would be. Yeah, no, that's right. Hey, just a couple of uh, 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 less serious questions to, uh, just to wrap up here, Hunsley. Uh So, you know, you grew up in Europe and uh, grew up here in America, too. So what's your preference? Is it American football or is it what the rest of the world calls football? I actually, I actually, uh, I say I could care less about uh, organized sports, and I say tell people I, I'm I'm in organized sports, and so I focus on horse racing. I don't really care about anything else. So I mean, to me, it doesn't really matter about if you're playing with American football or or football soccer. Oh, that's really funny. I mean, that's to me, really funny. Not as good as the sport <laughs> I'm in, right? So well, I'll tell you what. It's funny you say that because I find myself more often on Sundays now. I would rather just watch TVG and watch races from all over the place than watch the average NFL game is just too many commercials, too many breaks in play. And, and, uh, to me, you, you never know what you're going to get, you know, get when you watch it, when you watch a race and, and, uh, you'll see some, some great, I'd, I'd much rather watch racing these days than, than, than anything else really. Um, here's the last question for you. So Russ Duncliffe, thumbs up or thumbs down on Russ Duncliffe? What do you say? Uh, you know, I think the jury's still out on that one. Okay. <laughs> I think the jury's still out. We'll see. We'll see. Right. We'll see how it goes. Road Might have to ship him, ship him to another country uh, or another region, do you think, maybe? like a, like a No, I th- you know, I think he could be. No, uh, as a sire, top-level sire. No question about it. Um, so um, so I, I met um, Jerry Jones one time uh, at a wedding, and I uh, – I saw him and I said, you know what? I'm going to go up to this guy and I'm going to I'm going to pitch him on a horsey if he wants to get involved. And I walked up to him. I introduced myself and I I said, uh, you know, you know, congratulations. You know, it's amazing. Blah blah blah. And I said, uh, why don't you buy a racehorse? You know. And he and he looked at me straight in the eyes and he goes, he starts laughing. He goes, you know, what I do is hard, but what you do, that's really hard. And I thought, man, that <laughs> wow. is, that, that that is, and I guess you know he's had a lot of friends who have been involved, and it is, it is not an easy, it is not an easy uh, thing to, um, to find a good horse, race a good horse, have successful horses. Um, you know, he did give me some advice on how to improve our game. I, I thought it was interesting. He said, whatever you do, you know, do it big. You got to do it big, and you got to. Uh, you got to do it honest. Like it's got to be out there. And I told him at the time, I said, listen, you should, you should rethink that. I said, because you don't have to worry about our athletes, you know, coming to the door with a samurai sword to meet a, a, a pizza man or, you know, hitting like, you know, telephone poles with their new sports cars. I said, our guy, everyone, no matter what, everyone loves the horse. Yeah. And he laughed and he thought that was good too. It is good. It is good. Yeah. At the Samurai Sword, uh, we're probably naked greeting the pizza guy, right? Yeah, n- uh, <laughs> naked with the pizza guy. Yeah, that, that's a normal part of the day. All right, so Hunzel, you've been a great guest. Listen, thanks very much. As a token of my appreciation, I'm going to reach into my grab bag of gift certificates here, and I'm going to award you with, uh, here we go, it's a $25 gift certificate to Roger's Restaurant in Lexington. So thanks oh. again for joining us, Hunsley. Uh, much appreciated. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Take care, Huntley. We'll talk to you soon. Good talking to you both. Thank you. So now we're going to move on to our segment we call The Big Score. Joining us to give us his big score story today is T.K. Kugler, founder and managing partner of Wasabi Venture Stables. T.K., as many of you know, was our guest interview last week, but this week he's going to tell us about a memorable day that he's had at the track. I'm sure just one of many, T.K., right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, 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 if, if you're going to handicap at all, you're going to have memorable days that are good and memorable days that are bad. So. <laughs> well, let's hear about a good one. <laughs> we, yeah. we all know the bad ones. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll actually tell you, I, I've got two, um, and they're very different, but they're both uh, two that I, I appreciate, uh, if, you know, when I think about handicapping. Yeah. And the, the first one is, is actually not a single day, but a prolonged sort of period. Um, in the first half of 2017, uh, 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 so, so last year, mm-hmm. in the first six months, I hit uh, 18 pick fives oh uh, across the country in six months. Wow. Um, yeah, I was, on a, I was on a roll and on a streak. Um, where uh, where I was hitting I was hitting a pick five almost every week kind of thing and uh, it was and I and I only really handicapped two tracks to do that too uh, Laurel and Gulfstream okay um, uh, and uh, uh, it wasn't like I was playing a bunch of tickets and and the other key about it was is that no individual pick five ticket was ever more than seventy five dollars which was my rule. So it wasn't like I was spending five hundred dollars yeah. to to hit a big five. <laughs> I was spending seventy five dollars yeah. or less. Yeah. Right. Wow. Wow. So, so so that that was one. But the best single ticket that I ever cashed was actually um, uh, on a Kentucky Derby, which you know most handicappers will often talk about that their their biggest scores are on big races because you know the pools are bigger and sure. you know there's bigger fields and the opportunities are better. So the twenty seventeen. Um, Kentucky Derby. Um, I hit the superfecta and, and, and the trifecta. Um, I hit both of them oh uh, on the same day or uh, in the same race. And, and uh, so, uh, but the superfecta ticket alone, and I played it for a dollar, uh, was uh, just under seventy-six grand. Oh, um, wow! And, and and so, and I had that was the year always dreaming uh, one. Sure. And I had all. I had always dreaming singled with a with a you know a half a dozen horses yep. yeah, um, that I was that I was running in a wheel for the other four spots and uh, but I had always dreaming uh, on top and the and the ticket paid almost seventy six grand and I don't remember exactly what the the ticket cost but it was probably a couple hundred bucks uh, if I if I remember correctly it's kind of you know when I own those big races I kind of keep it to a couple hundred dollars when yep. I do those types of tickets. And, uh, and it, it, you know, and I had a couple long shots, which often happens uh, at a Kentucky Derby, came in on the underneath, right. and I happened to have the right horse on top that year, uh, it always dreaming, and, but uh, that, I, that was the year, like, looking at Lucky and Battle uh, yes. uh, of Midway. Battle of Midway, right, who right. Two, yep. Yeah, who were two long shots, came in underneath, and that just made the ticket blow up, and, uh, um and always dreaming was actually a logical pick. I mean, I, I I think he went off at like four or five to one. I don't remember the exact odds, but but it was in that range. So it was a logical pick on top, and then you know string a bunch of uh, you know six seven horses underneath and some kind of a wheel. And I just happened to get lucky that year and hit them, and it, it, the payout was pretty large. Well, it's you know you hit it on on a couple of things there that are interesting, right? Number one, the Kentucky Derby is the one of the few races other than. Breeders' Cup Day, where you can get odds of like four or five to one on a horse like Always Dreaming, right? Who is a, as you said, a logical, very logical win candidate. And to get four or five to one, you're not going to get that any other day of the year, right? Um, yeah. But 
and I imagine this plays into your pick five strategy as well. Is you, you got to have some singles in there, whether it's horizontally or vertically, right? Because otherwise, the tickets just get super expensive really fast. So, just going back to your pick five strategy for a minute, I got to believe that at a seventy-five dollar budget, you were finding some solid singles in those sequences that allowed you to spread in some of the other races. That, that's exactly right. What, one of my, I'll even, if you, if you want to hear it very quickly, I can tell you, I, I did a webinar one time on how to, how to, how I do pick fives or pick fours, you know, any of the, any of these long horizontals. Uh, but the, but the short take on it is go through, do all of your handicapping on the sequence and don't throw any horse out. Um, only throw out horses that are absolutely your, your throwing away. Go through very quickly and anything you're throwing away completely, take them off the list. And then you're left with some subset. And then spend your time that you're going to do handicapping and find a single somewhere. Wherever you think is your best bet in that series, that's your single. And then from there, you know, take some long shots. That's how you that's how you hit these horizontals and you hit them for a larger payout. Is is that you gotta have you gotta get a ticket that's you know, reasonably priced, and the only way to do that is to have a single somewhere yeah. on a horizontal or a vertical, and then you hope some long shots come in to make the to make the payout work, and then you take some chances on those other races. Yeah, and that's 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 the simplest strategy, and and in some cases you don't have to be the greatest of handicappers. It's much harder to pick winners over and over and over and over again, <laughs> where, where where if you could go to a race and say. I think half a dozen of these, you know, five of these could win. I'll take all five, you know, because I know over here I'm taking somebody that's short, you know, right. and I'm going like, right. I'm hoping that single hit, and I don't know nor care which of these five. I hope the longest of the long shot <laughs> hit these five. Exactly. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know which one's going to no, be. I'm right, going to take all right, five. Right. It, no, it's hard to do four or five in a row. You're right. So so spread and, and hope for the best, right? Just just don't hit the all button. It drives me crazy when I see people hitting the all button because that's basically saying, I have no idea. Uh, and how right. many you know, right. how many times do you see people hit the all button and then the seven to five favorite wins, right? And you're like, wow. Well, my, my, my worst beat is a near all button. I, I, it's Ten more seconds, I'll tell you the worst beat. I just told somebody this story yesterday. We were comparing worst beats, which is, you know, that's what handicap is. That's what we love to do that. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was live on a pick six, and I was at Gulfstream. I was physically there, um, and, I had, and I was live on a pick six, and I had all of the horses except for the 50-to-1 shot. So I had like six of seven or seven of eight. I don't remember the exact number. And lo and behold, the one oh, I God. did not have wins the race. Oh, God. And I was live. I, I was already spending the money, by the way. Of course. Um, you know, cause, I mean, <laughs> how could I not get this? I've got every logical pick except for, you know, except for the one that I didn't have. And that's, that's my worst speed of all time. I'm getting a hole in my stomach just listening to that story. <laughs> you know that, uh, and I'm sure you we've all done many times, as you, oh, no, as they cross the wire. Well, <laughs> you got to well, be kidding and, me. And, and the, you know, the guy I was with yesterday who we were comparing, uh, you know, notes um, about bad beats, his story was actually worse, which was he was live to either a pick five or pick six going into the last race, and he owned the horse and didn't have it on his own ticket, and that horse won. <laughs> that that story is actually worse. That is if worse. If your own horse beats you, because 
you're kind of like rooting against yourself as you're winning. I, I can't personally do that. Even if I know my horse is not a logical pick, I put it on a ticket. Oh, so. you have to. No, no, no. <laughs> That's a story that you so that, can only tell to very few people, I think, right? <laughs> right, right. But that's. That's um, that one. That one topped mine. Actually, I would. I would. I thought. I thought that was worse. So. <laughs> well, we all like to hear hearing about the, the good stories is much better. But you're right. We all do like to commiserate and wallow in our misery on the bad beats, and 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 we've all had them. So. TK, that's great. We really look. We really appreciate your time and uh, your support of the podcast, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. All right. Sounds great. All right. And as I said, Damien Tossi is joining us as this week's guest handicapper. Before throwing it over to Damien, though, let's take a quick look at last week's results from guest handicapper Ed Harvey. Unfortunately, it, and it sounds weird to say this, the rain held off, and so the expected deluge that was predicted to help Chad Brown's timeline in the Cigar Mile never materialized. But never fear, Chad Brown was there, and Chad's pattern of recognition, who had also cited as a contender, smoked the field, taking the lead out of the gate and never looking back. But... In all fairness, that horse was not our primary selection, so we're going to count that one in the loss column. Nevertheless, the ROI from our guest handicapper stands at a still lofty 93%, and I know Damien is going to join us to fire up that number even higher for us, Damien, right? <laughs> That's the plan. Let's hope <laughs> right. I can keep up the good luck so far. <laughs> all right, so what do you got for us? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, looking at the uh, 11th race at Fairgrounds, uh, mm -hmm. The Louisiana Championship Day, uh, the Sprint Stakes. It's a hundred thousand dollar race, uh, six furlongs on the dirt. Um, so, what kind of caught my eye about this race, and what I'd like, and why I sort of want to talk about it? Um, there are two standouts, in my opinion. They're also, you know, the first and second choice on the on the form. So I don't know what kind of, you know, not exactly uh, looking for a bomb here, but. I, what I thought was really interesting is how different the trips or the, the careers so far for these two horses have gone. Um, but the, the well-deserved favorite at seven to five is the third horse, uh, Monty man. So he debuted at aqueduct in New York in, in 2016. Uh, and it wasn't great. He was very green, um, showed a little bit coming into the stretch was in and out and, and looked like wasn't quite ready to be on the track just yet. Um, so he sort of unimpressively bounced around New York for yeah. the better part of a year. Yep. Um, a couple solid efforts in the claiming ranks, but really didn't show anything crazy. Um, it took him nine races to break his maiden. Um, it was his first really great effort where you saw that there was something there. Um, but again, it's in the low claiming level. Uh, he ends up getting claimed for $25,000 in 2017 uh, in a race at Belmont where he finishes uh, seventh out of eight horses, uh, another just a not great showing. Um, but then it sort of all changes. <laughs> they bring him to fairgrounds in December 2017, and he knocks off seven wins in a row. <laughs> he likes the uh, fair. Yeah. 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 Just five black type stakes races, uh, made over $250,000 since getting claimed Jeez. for 25 grand, which is, that's, that's a great that's claim. A solid claim. That's, a, yeah. 
yeah. for the people who toil in the claiming ranks, picking up, <laughs> picking up horses for money, pennies here and there, that that's your dream. That's, that's, right. that's what you're hoping yeah. for. Um, but just a really impressive horse over all those races. Um, a horse that can win a lot of different ways. Uh, he's won off the lead, um, off the pace. He's come from downtown. Um, obviously really loves the track. He's, he's 3-0 at fairgrounds. Um, he's always in the money at the distance. Um, but it's just interesting to see a horse that really started off just so unimpressively carve out just a really nice career for himself. Um, but a really interesting, uh, uh, change there. And then, um, so the other horse that I feel looks like a standout in this race is the, the two horse, uh, give me a minute, uh, set four to one. And he has essentially the polar opposite story. <laughs> um, so he debuts at, at the spa in 2017. You know, if you're debuting in a maiden specialty in Saratoga, someone believes in you. Mm-hmm. Um, he he goes off uh, twenty three to one odds, uh, and I was actually there that day. Uh, I wrote his name down in my phone to remember him <laughs> because he, he absolutely came charging into the flying. stretch, yeah, flying. And he picks up second in a in a just a really impressive race. Uh, in one of those ones where you know you look at the people next year and you say, yeah, you remember that one? That was yeah. a you know that was a run there. Um, so he moves directly into into a grade one in his next race. He runs in the hopeful, um, finishes third behind Sporting Chance and Free Drop Billy, ahead of Forenze Fire, who are horses. They were derby horses, uh, impressive horses. You know, he's running amongst really strong company and, and, and putting in good races already uh, very early in his career. Um, he runs in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. He rounds out the Super uh, in fourth place behind Good Magic, Solomini, and both Dioro, who are all, again, just really impressive horses. He's really showing you something. Um, they finally bring him out of the graded stakes, and they put him back into a maiden race in his, <laughs> his seventh career race. Yeah, maybe so trying. Yeah. So he's won a decent amount of money and, and looked really impressive without ever having won his first race. Um he things got a little rough after that. He, he's thrown in a couple of a couple of clunkers since then, um, but he he gets the he took a break in August until last month. Um, they put him out in Churchill in an allowance race uh, last month. He looked looked strong again. Good finished effort. second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's he's been hanging around uh, fairgrounds training uh, impressively. Good, really good works. Um, he gets a good jockey in Corey Landry, who I really like. I think he's a, a patient rider that that finds spots. And um, you know, again, I, you like you like to see horses with jockeys that know how to find teams and find spots and don't don't give them bad bad rides. And um, so it's Dallas Stewart's the trainer. Uh, Stewart and Landry uh, win together at a pretty good clip, twenty three percent with the with a good ROI. Um, a horse that is just clearly runs has run with the best company in the field by a long shot, yeah. and just again, I thought it was so interesting that these two horses have just had totally different, totally different leads into into this race, and they come together, and we kind of get to see, you know, 
who's gonna who's gonna right, take yeah. it? Is it the yeah. is it the horse with the with the pedigree or is it the horse that uh, that scratched and clawed his way to to become a to become a you know a, a bit of a star down at, at fairgrounds? Yeah. Um, Give me a minute. This he's an interesting horse, and in you know he's one of those horses that. Uh, you know, I'd love to have sat in on some of the conversations between the owner and the trainer because who is it that's been making the decisions about where this horse got entered, right? Um, exactly. You know, when I'm looking at these past performances, I'm thinking to myself, the owner, you know, decided he wanted to make a trip up to Saratoga. Lo and behold, the horse ran well, and and you know, that was actually his doom for the next five or six races, uh, right? Because he ran well, and and you know, you know, if you want to construct a narrative, right? Finally, the trainer gets a hold of him and says, look, let's put him back in state break company in Louisiana where he belongs. And he, he blossoms, and then the owner gets you know gets feeling big again, and here he is in the the Louisiana Derby and the Pat Day Mile and the great two Woody Stevens. And, uh, you know, exactly. <laughs> so, so finally, they you know he, he takes basically off since August, and he comes back in that good allowance race at Churchill. You're right. Now, and I, I'm sure one of the things that's entered into your thinking uh and it's one I always look for too in the estate bred stakes. Someone who's coming out of a solid effort in open company, right? Right. So, and then it's, it, you get the opposite when you look at you know Money Man's form too. Again, you know to come at it from a different way. You look at Give Me a Minute, and you see they they start bringing him into these Grade Ones, and they're dropping him, and against this incredible company, and and it's it's up and down, and there are some good starts, there are some really bad ones. Um, and then Monty Man, it seems like they found a spot for him, and then they just said, "Let's just run him here." You know, this yeah. is this is where we need to be. This is the level where we're comfortable. This is the level of win. You know, and you see this this great consistent pattern out of this horse, and it's it's just uh, it's it's funny how how people can come at it from from such different angles, and you know, all all racing for the same mighty dollar. Um, but uh, sort of a, it feels like a, you know, it's it's going to be true to form here. I really think these are the two that are going to, that are going to be yeah, there at the end. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. So my my bet would be pretty much to not outsmart myself and just kind of, you know, give a heavy-handed exacta box to those two and see if you can't, you know, turn yourself a little bit of a profit by by boosting your. Uh, by boosting your investment a little bit. Um, you know, I think if people, if you're looking for a price, if you're one, if you're one of those people that just needs a price in the ticket, um, I like the four as well. Uh, Giacomo song, uh, 10 to one. He was, uh, he was the second choice and finished fifth, uh, with Monty man in his last race, uh, which was a tough one. He broke through the gate, uh, at the start. <laughs> yeah. And then if you watch the race, they sort of rushed him when he came out. Oh, he, he rushed sort of yep. to the lead, and and I don't think that's where he wants to be. I think he he wants to kind of sit off, um, and I think he'll he'll be able to do that in this race. And you know, you could see a big bounce back from him and something like that. So that's another one. If you wanted to mix in more of a price there, I think uh, that that would be where I would go. Uh, Giacomo uh, Giacomo spelled differently, but uh, perhaps a big price, just like the uh, his Derby right, name, exactly, I guess, right? Like yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, just hope, hope for the same magic there. That yeah. they got. <laughs> well, you know, that's a it's a good call too on that last race that he had, um, and you know, you see this happen all the time. First of all, the question about he broke through the gate should he even have been 
a starter in that race, right? Because exactly. You know, I mean, those gates don't want to be broken through. Right, so right, he right, right. And then and then, and then he rushes up, which is always you know when you see a horse who let's see doesn't break well. Because my guess is he probably didn't break well after he broke through the gate, right? Uh, the first mm-hmm. time, and then they rush him up, and you know that is a prescription for disaster ninety five percent of the time. Because you're right, I think he actually probably wants to sit more off the pace a little bit, but. Uh, yeah, let's let's yeah, just say he was anxious all, that day, I guess. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. If, you, if you look at his races where he's been really successful and he's been on the board, he always seems to be just, just sort of off the pace and, and a little bit behind. Um, you know, he is he is a quick horse that, that likes to get up, but it was one of those races, if you walk it after, you know, when he gets up, you can see the jockey, he's strangling him trying to get him to stop. <laughs> yep. You know, because you know, he does not want him, he does not want him up on that lead, but... Um, I, I always like to, I, I kind of look for that sometimes when I'm handicapping I'm for those yeah. trouble lines yep. where, you know, you see, um, you know, if, if that, if that trouble, if he didn't get bumped, if he doesn't break the gate, if, if this doesn't happen, you know, does he have what it takes to win that race? And I, I really think that he's one of those, I think he's a strong contender in there too. That, and that's, you know, another horse definitely worth, worth mixing in there, uh, in this particular race. Um, a couple others in here. Uh, the one looks like he could be there. Um, you know, there's some shots in here that I don't, I just don't see it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of that would be where I would go with this. It would be, you know, your your top choices, and then I'd, I'd mix in that four horse Giacomo song and see if you can't uh, see if you can't catch some lightning in a bottle with him. So if we if we got to bet just one though, would you say it's give me a minute or would you say Monty Man? I'm gonna. I would go with give me a minute. I yeah. just think when I, what I saw that day in Saratoga in that in that first race, he, he's got a nose. He's got a nose for the finish, and you can't train that into a horse. They have it or they don't. Um, and and I I just think to have run amongst the company he's run amongst, I think he could come here, and I I think he could. He could easily either steal the race or he could win it by yeah. six lengths. You know, I really think he's got he's got just the, the best form. Um, and uh, so that's well, that's where I go. I go with the two if I'm if I'm putting down a win bet. I like it. I, I like those company. I, I'm a big company lines guy myself. I'm I'm always looking for that. And uh, yeah, like you, I was there that day at Saratoga myself, and I believe that I was singled to the winner. In a multi-pick, you know, pick three or pick four—I forget what it was—but I remember is <laughs> give me a minute to charge it down the lane. After I'm like, oh no, you know this. Oh, here we go. This looks bad. <laughs> here comes the twenty-three to one shot. Yeah. To steal this thing for me. <laughs> However, oh, I, I think I, I think I, I think I bombed out in the next leg. <laughs> so. yeah. Hey, Damien, that's really good stuff. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, that's that's uh, that's terrific uh, handicapping and and good uh, good banter there too. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Can Do, our horse racing podcast. Join us again next week. We'll have some great guests, and we'll have a big score story that's very timely for the season. Uh, Next week is actually going to be the last podcast of our inaugural season here. We will pick up the show again in late January. So for you millions of admirers out there, be patient. Uh, Take the time to enjoy the holiday season. Enjoy the time with your family and friends. Hold all tickets, and may the horse be with you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. 
here in the telegram. For a fair I'll bite. I hear his foot's all right. I'll pass it off. I told the horse to make red last night. I know it's violent.